Romans chapter 5. If you've been following with us, we have been for an extended period in the courthouse of God. Paul, the apostle who wrote this letter, has made a case for failure in the courthouse. All of us on trial, all of humanity on trial, having been found to have fallen short The law is really God's expectation of man's holiness. That's law. Law is, here's what I expect. You have law in your home. Here's what we expect of you. The law is, you're home by midnight, you know, the TV is off this time and that time, you get your homework done, you do the chores. That's the law economics. Economics is the law of the house. And so you have a law of the house. And kids, here's our expectations. And so law is what God expects of people, the holiness of God expected to be performed by us. The problem is, is that we've all fallen short of that. And that's the case for failure. None of us have lived perfect, righteous, and holy lives. Then Paul goes on to make the case for, do you remember church? The case for faith. That because our performance, because we never measure up, because we always fail to meet expectations. This is true of us on a human level too, church. This is why grace is so awesome in marriages. This is why grace is so awesome with parents and children. Both ways, by the way, gracious children being gracious to their parents. I know, don't laugh. And parents being gracious to their children. Because when we have expectations, the problem is, is they set us up for failure. And so faith comes in as the only way to be reconciled to God. It's got to be through faith because it can't be through what we do. It's got to be through what we know and what we believe of what God has shown us. So he's made the case for faith from a human side, but from God's side, why should we even be able to be reconciled to God? It's because of his love and his extension of grace. That's what happens when people don't meet your expectations. That's going to happen, right? We know that. You have expectations. People don't meet them. Grace is what happens next when you treat people with kindness and love when they fail to meet your expectations, that's grace. It's getting what you don't deserve. Getting what you don't deserve. When you meet up to the expectations, you deserved it. You got it. But when you don't meet the expectations and receive kindness and love and acceptance anyway, that's grace. And so Paul makes this statement, this case for grace. That's chapter five. And now we come to Paul's concluding remarks. I mean, the last things he says regarding this courtroom case for failure, faith, and grace. And so you know, you just know that when Paul is finishing up this argument, it's got to be the best of the best. You always end with the strongest argument. Just look down with me in chapter 5. Look at verse 20. I'm going to take you to where we're ending. In chapter 5, verse 20, Paul concludes his remarks by saying, Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but look at it, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. Where sin flowed, grace overflowed. So that's where we're heading, but it's going to be a little bit of a rocky road to get there. We're going to have to go through some challenging things, and we're going to find out that Paul gives another reason in his making a case for grace, because he just talked about being reconciled to God. Just look back again at chapter 5, the last two verses before 12, so 10 and 11, He says, if when we were enemies, we were reconciled, notice that word, reconciled to God, brought back together with God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, brought back together, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God 
through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the, what? Reconciliation. Three times in two verses, he mentions the word reconciliation. You can only be reconciled to somebody when you've been on the outs with them. When there's been a division, when there's been a conflict, when there's been a separation, that's when you need reconciliation. We're apart from one another and we need to be brought back together. So one might ask the question, where did that come from? Why do we need to be reconciled to God? Where did the break come from? And in our way of thinking, see, here's the challenge of this passage is that we in America and many places around the world, but notably in America, we think on a very individualistic basis that I do what I do. I rise or stand on my own. If I do well in life, then I get good results. If I'm lazy, then I get bad results. And we tend to think very individualistically that we are responsible for all the things we get or don't get. You have to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. If you fall short, well, it's your fault, something you've done wrong. The problem is the world's not fair like that. We think that's fair. It's not fair if I get something that I didn't deserve. I should deserve it and I should get it. And that's because of our very individualistic, and we want to be the ones to make the choice. But how many of you have already learned, and I think it's probably most of you, that the world just really isn't fair? What's not fair is that you were born in America. Did you choose that? You're born in America. You could have been born in Sudan. You could have been born in Syria. You could have been born, we visited in Nepal and Kathmandu, went to a slum village where everybody lives in a tin shelter. You can't even call it a house. The kids are filthy. All they have is rocks to play with. There's no internet. There's no you know, Netflix and all that stuff. How fair is that? You didn't choose. Maybe some of you were born with some type of genetic issue. You know, hemophilia is a genetically based thing. You didn't choose that. You didn't choose the family you were born into. So there's a lot in life that happens. You could be born into a great wealthy family with lots of love. You could be born into a very dysfunctional, abusive alcoholic family with no love at all. But you don't choose those things. And you say, well, that's not fair. Guess what? You are right. It is not fair. There's some things in this world that happen to you regardless of what you've done to deserve it or not. Can we say amen on that? So you've got to know that as we get into chapter five, you've got to get past cultural thinking and recognize that the world's not fair because what you're going to find out is grace isn't fair either. What's not fair is that Jesus Christ suffered horribly on a cross so that you and I could be reconciled to God. He became poor so we could become rich. That's not fair. Grace isn't fair either. So as we get into chapter 5, these are just kind of the things that we have to keep in mind as we get into verse 12, I should say. As we talk about reconciliation, well, why does this need exist for reconciliation with God? And as I said, this whole chapter will take you past your own individual choice, success, failure. And really the whole history of the world is summed up by two men and a one-act play. Who were the two men? It's not me and not you. It's Adam, the first man from whom every other human being came from, and Jesus, the second Adam, the second man. Those are the two men. Everything else in the world is inconsequential. The only thing that really matters is which of those men you identify with. Adam, the first man, or Jesus, the type of Adam that came later. And what was the one act play? Well, the one act on Adam's side 
was the one act of disobedience. And on Jesus' side was the act of obedience. That's the one act on Adam's part, one act on Jesus' part. So how does this all work out? Now let's get into it. Verse 12 says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sin. So he opens right up. He says, i got to take you back to the garden, back to the principle of what we would call the doctrine of original sin. Have you heard of that doctrine before? The doctrine of original sin. It is absolutely essential that you understand this because it solves a whole lot of problems in the way that you think and understand the world you live in, church, religion, God, works, law. All this stuff is solved right here. So it was through one man that sin entered into the world. And sin brought an evil twin with it. What was the evil twin that sin brought with it? Death. So in the Bible and in real life, Sin and death go hand in hand. Sin always leads to what? Death. Spiritual death and physical death. And he's going to prove that in a minute. So through one man, sin entered the world. And you say, that's not fair. I know. It's not. But that's the way it worked. Adam, in the garden, made a choice to disobey God. Now, Eve was deceived. Adam knew what the command was. And God had told Adam, Adam, you got all this blessing in the world, all these trees to eat from, all this freedom, all this liberty, but there's this one tree that you're not supposed to eat, tree of knowledge of good and evil. You leave that one alone, you'll remain righteous because when sin always equals death, righteousness always equals life. When a person is righteous, they live. When a person is sinful, they die. These things are always connected. So all Adam had to do was to remain righteous in the garden, in this communion with God, clothed in righteousness, clothed in light, perfect fellowship with God. All he had to do was leave the one tree alone. He had one commandment. He just had to leave the one tree alone. And he says, God, tell me where that tree is. Just, Just curious. Where is that tree? And then they're standing by the tree. And then Eve is eating of the tree because she got deceived by the serpent. And then Adam, who was right there with her, remained silent. And he chose to rebel against God and eat of that fruit. And what did God say? He said, the day you eat of it, what's going to be the consequence? You shall surely die. And so Adam gets banished out of the garden because that was where the tree of life was. All of life was there in the garden with God. It was all there. And Adam and Eve get banished out of the garden. And that's where they start the first family, right? Cain, Abel, and all the rest of humanity are born where? Outside the garden. Let's think about it this way. If you have a well, anybody have well water? I have well water. If that well gets corrupted, if my well gets infected, how many glasses of water do you think I'll have to take out of that before I get a good one? Will I ever get a good glass of water out of an infected well? No. If the root or the source is infected, then everything that comes from it is by nature affected. Let's look at it this way. Let me try to paint this in a different way. And then we'll have some summarizing of things. I just don't want you to miss the main point. It's as if the whole world can be summarized in and categorized into two kingdoms. There's the kingdom of life 
and righteousness and light and love. And then there is the kingdom of sin and death. We'll call this life world and death world. So here's what happens. Adam and Eve, they're in life world. They're on life continent, you know, life land with God, perfect fellowship. But they sinned. They rebelled against God and they were banished to where? Death land. And death land is where they started their family. Now, let's say I live here in America and I have a family. Let's say my wife and I settle down here in Virginia and I have a son and he rebels against me. He gives away his shoes or something silly like that. And it's a sin because <laughs> I paid for those shoes. I worked hard for those shoes. And he just gives them away like they're nothing. I've got to banish him for that. By the way, I've got to tell you this side story. God bless my son. He's never cared much about shoes. Maybe I care too much about shoes. When he was little, this little rascal, when he was young, we had gotten him these new shoes and he went outside and he was playing in the dirt and the mud in his new, and I said, take them. You know, we just got you those. Get, those are your good shoes. Get in here with your good shoes. And he's running through the dirt. And he said, dad, I don't care about shoes. I just love life. And I thought, man, I feel horrible now. I'm a rotten dad. You have fun, son. Someday you'll give them away to somebody else anyway. So my son gets exiled away from my presence because he's disobeyed. He's rebelled against me. So he starts a family, gets married there in death land and exile land, and he starts a family there. Let's say he moves to uh, Australia. Now his family is all separated from me. Everybody that's born and his whole family, they're all raised where? In Australia. I mean, imagine if the prodigal son started a family while he was feeding the pigs in the pigsty. His whole family would be separated from God. Do you see that? And so the whole human race, he says, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, we all have a sin to death. We're all born that way. When someone tells you, when they identify with their sin, well, I have same-sex attraction, I was born that way. I have opposite-sex attraction, I was born that way. I have anger problems. I was born that way. We all were born that way. We say, yes, we agree with you. I was born that way too. We're all born sinful. And he says, death spread to all men because all sinned. Now, that's not to say that all went on to sin later. You have to see this. This is absolutely crucial. He's not saying that death spread to all men because all sinned later on sometime. Every person that was in Adam, which is every person that's ever been born, we're all descended from one couple, Adam and Eve. And so we all sinned when, when Adam sinned. That's when we all sinned. And so on Death Island, you know, you, people do stuff on that. They try to carve out lives of meaning in this life of death that they have. See, I told you it would be a rocky road getting to the grace abounding part, right? I mean, this is the reality. This is why Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, we were dead in our sins and trespasses. But here we all are. We're living in death land. And we're raising families and we're raising little dead kids. We get married. Oh, maybe I'll find meaning in life and fulfillment if I get married. So one dead person marries another dead person and we wonder why they have trouble. Wonder why there's difficulty because we're spiritually dead and we're all dying. And that's why there's so much trouble. And then so we take our little spiritually dead children to play sports and try to get meaning there. And 
that doesn't satisfy, and so we try to have jobs. And then, well, we have this inkling of what life used to be. Somehow this life we've never lived back in the garden, we know it was there. We've heard about it, but no one knows how to get there. We can't get back there on our own. And so we start religion, which means to relink. Well, maybe we can somehow relink with that old life that we remember but have never lived. And so any religion that starts in deadland is what? Dead. Anything that happens there is rooted in deadness. In my flesh, Paul says, dwells no good thing. So anything that happens there, any religion, any worship kind of things that happen in dead land are all just dead. Why? Because all sin. Now, he says, well, what do you mean all sin? How do we know all sin? He says, for until, verse 13, until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed or accounted when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is the type of him to come. From 13 to 15 is a little parenthesis, because Paul's expecting that you might argue, because you say, well, shouldn't my life be based on my own individual choice? If I sin and it's my fault, then I can do things to make it up, right? I can repent and I can make it up to God. But Paul says, it wasn't you, it was Adam. This whole thing transcends you. It goes all the way back to Adam and his sin and the sin nature, the sin principle that exists in the fabric of our very being. And here's how you know, because what do we say sin is connected to? Sin is connected to death. It says, let me prove this to you. Is Adam in the garden, he was given a command by God that he directly broke. But then between Adam and Moses, Exodus, when the law is given, there's none of this direct commandments of God stuff. There's no law. But yet, what happened between Adam and Moses? People died. People still died. And Genesis chapter 5 is one of the most challenging passages in all of the Bible because we see people living for a great long time, and then they die. And that was new. That was not in God's original plan. That was not the intention. But we see death entering in when sin entered in. So we realize that as we're born into this condition, and you know it, parents, you know it. I mean, it's a good thing children, infants, aren't born 6'5", 220. That would make nighttime nursing really challenging. We have two kids, and I don't ever remember one of them during the nighttime going, I'm really hungry, but I don't want to wake mom and dad. Like, infants don't say that. They want what they want when they want it, and it doesn't matter what anybody else thinks about that. They don't care. They're born little selfish savages. you got a couple of them at home too, don't you? And then they become teenagers, big selfish savages. And then they become adults, and they realize and they apologize to you for being such a sinful, selfish savage when they were little. But we know this. Kids come out twisted. We come out twisted. And sometimes infants die before they've done anything sinful. Remember the guy born blind? And they asked him, well, who's responsible? Whose sin was it? Was it his sin or was it his parents' sin? They believed that when there was this death or disability, that it was because there was sin involved and that was a punishment. So they believed that a child could sin in utero 
and therefore be affected and afflicted because of that, or the parents' sin during pregnancy would then bring about an affliction on their children. That's why they asked the question, whose sin? There's got to be a reason he's born blind, got to be a punishment. Was it his parents or was it his fault? It was sin principle at work. The proof of that, before they do anything good or bad, they still can die. And that's because of not something they did or something you did. It's because of something Adam did in the beginning. And you say, that's so unfair. I know. I know. But what would be really unfair is if God just left it there. Wouldn't that be really unfair? But watch what happens next. He says, you know, again, verse 14, nevertheless, death reigned. Death reigned as king between Adam and Moses, between the first commandment and the giving of the law. Death was king on earth, and death is still king on earth. Nobody escapes it. If you find a person that can escape dying at some point, whether it's when you're a newborn infant or whether you're lived to be 120, everybody dies, and that's because everybody sinned where? In Adam. And the proof of that, the proof that you have this sin principle at work in your life is that you then live up to what your nature is. You sin because you are a sinner. You don't become a sinner when you sin. Does that make sense? You were born that way, and the result of that is the stupid things you do that rebel against God. That's just proving who you are, even though there was no law. Because when there's no law, you can't punish someone when you haven't told them what's wrong, right? So the death can't be a punishment for my own actions because an infant doesn't do anything punishable. They haven't done anything wrong. They haven't rebelled against God, but yet the death principle is still there. So he's making sure you understand. So that's kind of terrible news, and it would be awful news if there wasn't verse 15 and on. He says, but the free gift is not like the offense. So he's going to compare Adam to another man, Jesus, and his gift. The free gift is not like the offense. There's a comparison, but it's a comparison by opposites, really what we would call a contrasting. So he's contrasting what Adam did with what Jesus did. When Adam bombed out, we call it the Adam bomb. When he bombed out, Jesus is the one that puts the pieces back together. But the free gift is not like the offense. For if by the one man's offense, many died, Adam's one offense brought death to everybody, how much more or much better the grace of God and the gift, the free gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. So it's not just an equal tit-for-tat kind of thing. It's not just an equality where the offense of Adam was awful and horrible and brought death. That one act brought death to everybody. The grace of God not just brings forgiveness to the sinner, but also a new life and reconciliation to God and acceptance and eternal life and all these things. So Adam caused one bad thing to happen. Jesus' grace causes a whole lot of awesome things to come into your life. You see, it's better. It's much better. So God didn't just make up for it. He made it better and then some. That's our God. God does exceedingly and abundantly more than we can ask or think. So if by one man's offense many died, much more of the grace of God and the gift of by the grace of the man, the one man, Jesus Christ, it abounded to many. So he goes on. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. 
For the judgment which came from the one offense resulted in condemnation. Stop right there. Remember when Jesus, uh, John 3, 16, you know, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son to that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life, right? You know that verse. You know, the next verse reminds us that Jesus didn't come into the world to condemn the world. The world was already under the condemnation because of what happened in the garden with Adam, not because of what you did, because of what Adam did. You would have done it if you were there anyway. You'd have done the same thing. But the whole world is already under condemnation. Jesus came that we would have life and we would be restored. For the judgment, that's what it was, was punishment for the one offense resulted in condemnation of the whole world and everybody who's ever been born and never will be born. But the free gift, which came from many offenses, resulted in justification. The free gift which came as a result of and on account of, not as a result of necessarily, but on account of how many offenses do you think we would add up in this room? If we all put our sin in a hat, we need a pretty big hat. So Adam's one offense resulted in condemnation, but Jesus's obedience and his gift is the result of many, many offenses and leads to our being counted innocent. Remember what I said, if sin equals death, then if you deal with sin, what else do you deal with, folks? You deal with death. You see it? If you deal with the sin and the sin is forgiven and the sin is punished and Jesus' life given, then there's no more punishment to you. What was the punishment? Death. Guess what you won't do? You'll die physically, but you will live eternally. Why? because of justification, because your sin has been dealt with, the punishment has been paid, you can be restored to life. By anything you did, are you earning this? It's by the one man, Adam, and the one man, Jesus, who did it for you. You can't go back to the garden and deal with what Adam did, but Jesus can. And he's the only one who lived a perfect, obedient life. That's why we say there's only one way. What other religion can claim that? What other religion can explain the pervasiveness of sin and death on the earth? How do you explain that? I mean, if you can explain it, write a book, please. I'd love to read it. I find nothing that gives such an accurate and sensible understanding of the world we live in, the problem. And remember all those people on Death Island? They all know something's wrong, and every generation tries to fix it with fixing that only comes from themselves. Has any generation ever fixed it? Have we ever fixed the sin problem? No, we're a mess. We're getting more of a mess. 4, verse 17, if by the one man's offense, death reigned. That's a very important word. Death was the reigning king. Death reigned through the one much more, much better those who receive, notice that word, those who receive abundance of grace and the gift of the righteousness will reign in life. What I say was connected, righteousness is connected to life. Not only are your sins forgiven, if that was it, you'd just sin again and you'd be punished again. So God does something beyond just forgiving your sin. He gives you his son's righteousness. That's better. I don't have my own. 
I've got Jesus's righteousness. Therefore, my life is guaranteed and secure, not by all the things I try to do in Deathland. You know, we all look, well, I'm less dead than you. Well, who cares? I wear a suit to church or I read the right Bible translation or so I'm a little bit less dead than you. What are you talking about? We're all dead. I told you this is going to be a rocky road getting to this verse, right? You're with me. The gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so through the one man's righteous act. It was right when Jesus was in the garden. He had the chance to disobey, didn't he? When he was in a different garden, a different time. There was the garden where Adam was, and Adam had a choice, and Adam chose rebellion against God. But then God gives a second chance. He gives it to his son, his perfect son, Jesus. And Jesus in the garden says, Father, if there is any other way, please take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. You see, we all say, my will be done. Jesus said, thy will be done. And he obeyed even to the point of death, even the death of a cross. And that obedient act and the accompanying resurrection. Because if Jesus gets killed and he has no sin in his life, can he stay dead? No, because he's righteous. He's got to live. And when he lives, it's just the proof of our innocence when we live with him. It's the proof that we've been forgiven. When we walk into eternity, it's the proof that you have been fully and utterly forgiven and given perfect righteousness because you will live. You can't do anything else but. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. That's so unfair. Yep. So also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. That's unfair too. See, you didn't choose Adam, but you get to choose Jesus. This is called federal headship. We elect a president. And that president acts federally on behalf of all of us. He acts on our behalf. Adam acted on all of our behalf. Jesus, we get to elect him, select him. Jesus then also acted on our behalf. That's what it says for us. By one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. So also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. Who will be made righteous? Those that choose him by faith. It's as if he shows up on death island. Life shows up on death island and says, anybody that will follow me, I have bridged the gap back to life island. I can take you back to God. Anybody that wants to come on. I don't believe it. I don't think that's a real boat. We don't know who you are. We don't really think you are who you say you are. The people on death island get so twisted that when life shows up, they don't even recognize it. That's how twisted we get on Death Island. Life's there, and they kill life. They kill love because they become so twisted. And Jesus says, if anybody wants to follow me, I can take you back to God. You don't have a boat yourself. You got to get in his boat. You got to get in with him. He can take you there. He said, I am the way. You want to get back to God? That little part of your heart, that little thing that when you look at the news, when you look at the world, you go, something is not right. Someone's got to fix the healthcare system. Someone's got to fix the religious system. Someone's got to fix the education system. You're right, they're all broken because they're all overseen by human people that are all living under the principle of sin. And we all look at it, we go, it's not right. Yes, you're right. Because there's an inkling in you that knows what it should be like. 
And that's what you long for. That's what you really want. And it's all found in the one man, Christ. Not by religion, by Jesus Christ. Moreover, he says, the law entered so that the offense might abound. Why did the law come? The law didn't come so you could keep it and be righteous and guarantee your own life. That's ridiculous. We know that by intuition. We don't need to read that. The law entered, you know, before there was the 45 mile an hour sign there on Route 53. It used to be 55, I think. At least that's what I drove. Coming to church this morning, I'm thinking about this passage and I'm cruising at about 50 and I see the sign going 45. I'm going, well, I'm late. I need to get there to justify my own sin. But when they put the sign up, you go, oh, it just reveals what you are. The law wasn't meant to fix us. As one man said, when you're sick, you don't swallow a thermometer to get healthy. The thermometer just tells you, you got a fever, something's wrong. So when the law comes in and says, don't covet, you used to think coveting was okay. As long as I don't take it, I can long for it in my mind. And God says, actually, that's sin too. Oh, I didn't know that. Now I'm really in trouble. It just reveals our sin. And then you just go, oh, that sounds so hopeless because I see the extent of my sin. And then he hits the final closing remark. He says, but where sin abounded, because when the law comes, the more law, the more sin abounds. Tell me, parents, moms and dads, the more rules you make for your kids, the more opportunity there is to say no and to punish. Where there's more law, there's more sin. And the more laws you make, the more it abounds. And it just sets up this whole crazy law-based thing and makes everybody frustrated and discouraged. What we need in the church, what we need in our homes, what we need in our marriages, but where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. Super abounds. Could that be said of us? Wouldn't we say maybe where sin abounds, frustration abounds even more? Where sin abounds, disappointment abounds even more. When we say that, I think that's how we talk. But what God says is when expectations are unmet, my grace is even greater than unmet expectations. And if you could do that in your marriage, if your grace could superabound in your home when expectations are unmet and yet there's love and kindness anyway, if you could do that as parents, change the world. But in a church, if grace could superabound, this is God. There is no place you've been where his arm can't reach you. Doesn't matter how bad your sin, what you've done, where you've been, where your sin has abounded. Oh, and it has, church, hasn't it? Then God's grace has superabounded. He can reach you wherever you are so that as sin reigned as king on death island, even so grace reigns as king through righteousness to eternal life through the King of kings and the Lord of lords, Jesus, who is the other kingdom, the kingdom of life is all connected to Jesus. So this is your deal, guys. You just choose which kingdom you want to be part of. You just choose, do I want to stay in Adam and in sin and in death? Or do I want to get on the boat, become a follower of Jesus and join in the kingdom that leads to eternal life now and forever? That's it. It's two men and a one-act play. Jesus or Adam, one act of offense that you're tied to, that you identify with, or you can choose to identify with that obedient work of the cross 